morning again. You could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. That will be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, let me say, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be plenty on the back table there. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to grab one from the back table, take it home with you, write your name in the cover, keep it as your own, and bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As we come to God's Word, let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you are not silent, that you have spoken to us, that we can open your word and hear from you, our God. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who opens our hearts and opens our minds and unstops our ears that we might understand the things written in your word. And we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit now, that you would give us open ears to understand, to hear and to understand what you have written We pray that you would use your word by your spirit to to work faith in us and to transform us into the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, And you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hypocrisy is, I think, considered one of the worst sins in our contemporary culture. And our thought goes a little something like this. Uh, As long as you're sincere, you can believe pretty much anything you want. You can do pretty much anything you want. Authenticity is king, which makes hypocrisy pretty much an enemy of the state. Hypocrisy is everybody's whipping boy, right? I mean, it's our straw man against religion. I mean, the the religious people are hypocrites. We all know that, right? And therefore, I'm not going to be religious. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be true to myself. And yet, as I've been thinking about it this week, I've been thinking, as you can read a lot about hypocrisy, as I've been thinking about that, I've realized that the problem with authenticity, the way we think of it, is that it has the same root problems as hypocrisy, as Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 23. And so we're going to talk about hypocrisy, but we're also going to talk about sincerity and judgment and grace. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you can see that's the outline for our sermon this morning. Hypocrisy, sincerity, judgment, and grace. Now, hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something that you're not, right? When we uh, deceive people into thinking that we are better than we really are. And six times in this passage, Jesus uh, calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. Uh, Clearly, this is the dominant accusation at the heart of this text, right? He is accusing the religious leaders of Jesus' day of being hypocrites. And Jesus spends a good deal of time uh, describing their hypocrisy. He thought it was important for us to grasp the serious nature of religious hypocrisy, so what we're going to do is we're going to first, we're going to look at Jesus' charge. We're going to look at the accusation that he lays at the feet of the religious leaders. And we're going to look at it in terms of, of a threefold disparity, a threefold difference, a threefold divide. And we'll see that hypocrisy is, is really a disparity between three things. It's a disparity between what you say and what you do. 
It's a disparity between your actions and your motives, and it's a disparity between your appearance and the reality. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about hypocrisy, to be sure, uh, but this is, is a good place to start. So we'll look at these three disparities to begin with. Disparity number one, the disparity between what we say and what we do. Jesus, uh, you may remember, he's been arguing with the Pharisees for a couple of chapters now. And they've been asking him questions, trying to trip him up, trying to trap him in his words. And he keeps giving these answers that are beyond their wildest dreams. And finally, he asks them a question. And it's a question that leaves them speechless. So once again, when we get to Matthew 23, Jesus is on the offensive he, uh, in verse 1, he turns to the crowds and the disciples, and he says this in verse 2. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Many of the scribes and the Pharisees were teachers. Uh, it was their job to talk. And uh, that's what Jesus means by verse 2, right? They, they sit on Moses' seat. It's not necessarily uh, talking about a literal seat, though people in those days did sit to teach, right? We would have a chair up here. I would sit down and you all would stand. Uh, <laughs> that's the way they did it. Um, so, so he is talking about taking up pos a position, though, of authoritative teaching, and uh, there is maybe, as you can imagine, a greater danger of hypocrisy for teachers like me and for anyone in a visible position who is likely to want to impress people. And so Jesus calls out these teachers in his day and he instructs the crowds. He, he says that they're to do and observe whatever they tell you. Apparently, they weren't bad teachers, right? When they were expounding the scriptures, talking about Moses and the prophets, what they said was true on some level, and people should listen. But do not do the works that they do, Jesus says, for they preach, but do not practice. To illustrate this picture, Jesus uh, pictures someone uh, tying up heavy packages and placing them on another person, and yet refusing even to lift one finger to carry those packages himself. You see that the Pharisees and scribes, they could preach, they could even make it, they would make it hard on other people. They would bring down the weight of the law, but they didn't practice it themselves. See, the Pharisees knew all of the loopholes to the law, and so that meant whatever obligation they would put on someone else's shoulder, uh, they knew how to get out of it themselves. And here is uh, what we need to think about right away. I mean, some of us in here are teachers. Some of us uh, teach the Bible in different uh, places in different times. And uh, there's a simple question to ask, right? Do you practice what you preach? Of course, we can ask the same question of every Christian in the room, right? Does your life conform to your doctrine? I mean, there's always someone, of course, who's quick to say, well, of course my life conforms to my doctrine. I believe in total depravity after all. <laughs> and that's valid. Um, but we also believe in grace, and do we live like it, right? Do we live as, as one who has been forgiven? Uh, do you forgive others the same way that God has forgiven you in Jesus? Are you living a life of humble repentance? Uh, do you apologize when uh, you wrong others? Do you tell them you're sorry, right? Do, are you ready to acknowledge your shortcomings? 
Are you striving after obedience? I mean, yes, we know that we're sinful, and yes, we know that we're, we're not going to be perfect, uh, but we have received the grace of the Holy Spirit. And do you strive to honor God in the power of His Holy Spirit? Or is grace on your lips, but not in your life? Right? Are you good at talking theology, but lazy in living it out? Uh, do you know more about eschatology than you do about Christian ethics? Is there a disparity right, between your words and your actions? That's disparity number one. Disparity number two is the disparity between our actions, what we do, and our motives. Verse 5 uh, says this, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, Jesus uh, has, been ta has talked before about, um, about this in the Sermon on the Mount in an extended section. He talked about the fact that our actions are one thing, but the motives of our actions are a completely different thing. And here he talks about making their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, right? What, what in the world does that mean? Well, the phylactery was a, a box. It had pieces of Scripture placed inside of it, and then it was worn on the head in kind of an overly literal reading of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So people would do this in obedience to what they thought Scripture was telling them to do. They would make a box, put Scripture inside of it, and act literally wear the box on their head. To make their phylactery broad, right, would be to make a show of your obedience, to pronounce your religious behavior. You know, the bigger the box on your forehead, the more likely people are to see it, I guess is the idea. To make your fringes long, that would be the same thing. Uh, God commanded his people in Numbers chapter 15 to put tassels on the corners of their garments to remind them of God's commandments. And so to make your fringes long, to make your tassels long, would be to pronounce your religious observance. Why would anyone want to do that? I mean, why would you want people to notice the, the box on your head or the fringe on your garment? Well, because, you know, you don't just want to obey God, but you want people to see you obeying God. Uh, we want people to see our religion. We don't just want to be religious. We want people to notice it. They loved the places of honor, Jesus says. They loved being called rabbi. They loved titles of respect. Why? Why? Well, they wanted people to think well of them. You know, when other people look up to you, it makes you feel good, right? And that's what they wanted. They wanted people to look up to them. They wanted people to see them. There was a disparity between their actions and their motives because their actions looked upright. They looked good. They looked moral. They looked God-centered even. Look, I'm, I'm, I have fringes in obedience to God's commandments. I have this phylactery in obedience to God's commandments. I'm obeying God, but... In reality, their motive was, I want people to like me. I want people to look up to me. I want people to respect me. I want people to honor me with titles and names and the best seats in the house. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you wanted to be recognized, where you were even working the room, right, to make yourself known? Uh, you know, you, you say things like, oh, by the way, guess who I met last week, right, to try to impress the people around you. Or, you know, you, you ask a fellow student, oh, how'd you do on that exam? Oh, that's such a shame. I aced it myself. Now, maybe we're a little more subtle than that. I like to think I'm more subtle than that. But on some level, deep down, uh, many of us love positions of prominence. Uh, we want to be known. We want to be looked up to. We want people to respect us and think well of us. 
Jesus points out in, in verses 8 through 12 that we're not to seek positions of prominence. Jesus is our teacher, right? And we are all brothers. We're all a part of one family. God, the Father, is our Father. Uh, we're not to exalt teachers with that title of Father. The Christ is our instructor, right? We have one instructor, Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is not saying that there are not to be any teachers in the church. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that Jesus gave teachers to the church. But he didn't, we're not to put ourselves above other people. Right? I, I may be a teacher here in this church, but, but I'm, I'm just your brother in Christ at the same time. I'm not to exalt myself above you. You're not to put me on a pedestal or any other teacher for that matter, right? We, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom anyway is not about prominence and notoriety. Greatness is in Jesus' kingdom, he says in verse 11, is about service. That's what it means to be great. Those who serve are the great ones. Whoever lifts himself up, God will put down, Jesus says. But whoever humbles himself, whoever serves... Whoever takes the low place, God will lift him up and exalt him. Jesus said elsewhere in Matthew, uh, Do not do your good deeds to be seen by men, but do them to please your Father in heaven. Right? What's the motive behind what you do? Hypocrisy is this disparity, right? It's a disparity between our words and our actions, between our actions and our motives, right? Why am I doing the thing that I'm doing? Am I doing it to honor God and serve others? Or am I doing it to exalt myself? There's another disparity we see in the passage, and that's the disparity between appearance and reality. This is maybe a little broader than the last one. Uh, Jesus gives seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, and we're going to go through them quickly, uh, but just try to get a sense of the emptiness of the religion in Jesus' day as Jesus saw it. So verse 13, as, the religious, as religious as the Pharisees looked... Jesus says they actually hindered other people from entering the kingdom of God, and they stayed out themselves. And see, the thing is, anyone who is full of religion and theology and, and God speak, but empty of the grace of God, empty of Jesus, empty of the cross, actually hinders people from entering the kingdom, because we can only enter the kingdom through Jesus. Whether you're a preacher or a layperson or the Pope himself, right? If, if you are not leading people to Christ, if you're not leading people to grace, if you're not leading people to the cross, your religion hinders rather than helps people into the kingdom. Verse 15, uh, it seems that some of the Pharisees were devout evangelists and uh, they made every effort to make even one single convert, but they are spreading their hypocritical religion. They're not focused on God, they're not focused on grace, but on puffing themselves up for keeping their uh, laws and their traditions. And so their converts, right, as new converts often are, uh, they're more zealous than the Pharisees themselves about this legal religion. And so Jesus says that they are twice as much children of hell as the Pharisees themselves. Verses 16 to 22, Jesus describes the way the religious leaders handled oaths and it went something like this, right? I could say, I, I swear by the temple itself to donate half of my money to Compassion International or, you know, pick your favorite charity. But that oath isn't binding. It's not binding because I swore by the temple, you see? And uh, if I swear by the gold of the temple, well, that would have been bounding, but, uh, binding, <laughs> bounding. Uh, but I just swore by the temple itself, so it's not binding. And Jesus speaks to multiple what we see as silly distinctions made in that day. 
And the point of all that is this. It's the heart behind such thinking. Right? Why would I make these grandiose promises that I have no intention of keeping? Well, because I, I look like a great person if I make great promises. And I may even look in that day, I may even look like a good religious person as I discern carefully which of my words are binding and which are not. Right? And I make these sort of nitpicky distinctions. Well, I, I didn't actually sign it. I just gave a verbal agreement. So how does that? No, no, no. Right? It, it's all a sham. Why, why is all of that necessary? Well, because we don't want to keep our word. We don't want to, to actually have to live up to what we say. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We're not to give the appearance of intending to do something if we're not actually going to do it. Verse 23, the Pharisees uh, were told, it goes on, the Pharisees were told, were very meticulous in their obedience to God. They went even above and beyond what the law required. They gave a tenth of all their household spices. Again, there's the appearance of something uh, that's very concerned to obey God. But the reality is they did these little things but neglected the things that were most important, Jesus says. Their appearance was that they were so religious, but in reality they were in rebellion against God. And as Christians, we often fall into this as well, right? We can cross our T's and dot our I's when it comes to theology, but we don't love our neighbor even one wink. We're ready to fight people tooth and nail about how bad our culture has become, but we're slow to actually proclaim grace, which is the real remedy for the ills of our culture. We get our priorities all wrong, right? We, we focus on the little things, we neglect the big things, and we think we're representing God well. Jesus says justice and mercy and faithfulness, these are the weightier matters of the law. Jesus says in another place, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, love God, Jesus says, that's the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor, that's the second. Love one another, he says. Uh, even love your enemy, he says at one point, right? These are the call of Jesus. Take up your cross, follow him in service of God and neighbor. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, those are the weightier things. Are you majoring on the minors as sometimes it's put? Now, note Jesus doesn't say, uh, he's, well, he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so he, it's not that, well, if it's a secondary thing, you can just dismiss it and not worry about it. But Jesus is saying your priorities need to be reorganized. And that this should be reflected in your time and in your money and in your character. It, it's weighty. Right? He's saying, are your priorities what they should be? Or are you focused on the nitpicky things and ignoring the big things? Verse 25, that's where he talks about cleaning the inside of the cup. And uh, there may have been a literal reference that Jesus was referring to. I don't know. But there's definitely a figurative one. The religious leaders were so concerned about looking clean, they ignored cleaning what was most important, their hearts. Jesus says, first, clean the inside of the cup. Once your heart has been cleansed, your behavior will follow. If your heart is full of greed and self-indulgence, cleaning up your behavior is mere hypocrisy. The next woe is on the same lines, verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but 
Within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is honing in here on the heart of what is really going on, which is the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the heart of you and me. And he's saying it doesn't matter how much you pretty yourselves up on the outside, right, with fancy clothes or fancy religion, if your heart is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, woe to us. There's one final woe, right, then in verses 29 to 32. And it's, it's odd. It's an odd one to us. Because we think that building monuments to old unsung heroes, that should be a good thing, right? Their ancestors killed the prophets, but they are honoring the prophets. They're making a break with the ways of their ancestors. And yet Jesus knows better, right? They are again making a show of righteousness by distancing themselves from the unrighteousness of their past. But their hearts remain unchanged. From the days of their fathers, their hearts have not changed. They prove that, right, when they put Jesus to death. How often do we react against the sins of others, maybe even the sins of our parents' generation or generations before, only to fall into the same new, equally terrible sin, right, the same kinds of sins? Our hearts have not changed. So hypocrisy, right, it's when there's this disparity between my words and my actions, between my actions and my motives, between my appearance and the reality, and As I think about this, I think this is scary. It's scary because which of us doesn't have these disparities on some level? I mean, which of us always lives up to what we profess? You know, raise your hand. Go ahead. Just kidding. You know, who among us, right, has pure motives for even one action? When do we not put the best spin on life and try to gloss over our failures and sins? Hypocrisy is when we pretend to be something we're not, when the intent is to deceive people into thinking that we're better than we really are. The driving force, though, Jesus is saying, is as we saw, the driving force behind that is this desire to look good, this desire to be liked, this desire to be thought well of. The heart of hypocrisy, as Jesus sees it, is, is wanting to please men rather than God. And of course, inevitably, that's going to lead to disparities because all man can see is my outward appearance. You can't see my heart. And so as long as I can make this look good, right, then, then you can like me. But let's be honest, right? I mean, the reason the world often accuses Christians of being hypocrites is because it's so often true. I mean, we don't admit our sin and our struggles, We do try to pretend that we're something that we are not. We try to pretend that we're further along in the whole practice of the Christian life and Christian maturity than we really are. We believe there's a standard. We know God has a standard. We know we've fallen short of that standard. We feel the, the guilt, but we deal with it by hiding our sin, even as we talk about how bad the world is getting around us. Sincerity is free of the problems of hypocrisy. I mean, the dictionary definition of sincerity is is being free from hypocrisy. And think about the disparities we've just talked about. Uh, With sincerity, there's no uh, disparity between your words and your actions. Right? You you mean what you say. You say what you mean. With sincerity, there's no uh, disjunction between your actions and your motives. Right? What's on the inside is what you see on the outside. With sincerity, there's no disparity between your appearance and the reality because what you see is what you get. 
The sincere person is not trying to put on a show. They're, they're just being real, right, we say. They're just being authentic. They're just being true to themselves. But think about that. I mean, think about the way we talk about sincerity. We say things like, uh, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Or it doesn't matter how she's living as long as she's true to herself. Now, I'm not knocking sincerity. Don't get me wrong. Uh, sincerity itself is a good thing. But sincerity isn't enough. In fact, there are two similarities, fundamental similarities, between the way we view sincerity and hypocrisy. Two things that are actually the same. They seem like complete opposites, but there are two things that are the same. The first similarity is this. Well, the, the difference between hypocrisy and authenticity, or hypocrisy and sincerity, could be put in these terms. Right? In hypocrisy, the inside of the cup is dirty, and the outside of the cup is clean. If I'm being authentic, the inside of the cup is dirty, and the outside of the cup is dirty. You know, now, if by authenticity and sincerity we mean something like being honest about our brokenness, even as we strive to overcome that, great, right? We'll come back to that. But mostly by sincerity, we mean something like, well, this is the way I am. Just deal with it. I'm, an, I'm being authentic, right? This is just who I am. And in this sense, sincerity and hypocrisy are really just two different ways of wrongly dealing with sin. We can hide it and pretend everything's okay, or we can let it all out and pretend everything's okay. Neither gets inside the cup. Neither cleanses the heart. When we talk about sincerity or authenticity today, typically what we mean is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you want. You just follow your heart wherever it will take you. But Jesus is saying your heart is the problem. The hypocrite tries to cover up his heart. The sincere person follows it. But neither one acknowledges that the fundamental problem is that my heart is unclean. Neither one repents. So whether we try to cover up our heart or whether we follow our, our heart, Jesus says it is the heart that defiles a person. That's one similarity. The heart's the same. Here's a second similarity. You know, we read a passage earlier from Isaiah 29 where God rebukes his people uh, for drawing near with their mouth and honoring God with their lips when their hearts were far from him. And then verse 15 of Isaiah 29 says this, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel and whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? What are the people saying there? They're saying God doesn't take notice of our actions. Who sees us? Who knows us? God doesn't notice. What they mean by that is their actions are not going to be judged. Right? They're going to get away with this because nobody sees, nobody knows, nobody's going to judge. The religious leaders in Jesus' day who wanted to honor God, who kept the law scrupulously, also plotted how to put Jesus to death. They must have thought, according to Isaiah, that God wasn't watching or God didn't know or God wouldn't judge or something. And we often fall into this. This often happens when we focus on the outward appearance. We, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we, we give our 10%, we pray every day. Surely God is not going to quibble over my motives. Or I've got great theology, right? I believe the right things. My method of apologetics and evangelism is the right method. Surely God is not going to be upset with me for being harsh now and then. I mean, I'm right after all. 
And the person who follows the logic of be true to yourself and follow your heart is really thinking the same thing. They're thinking, how could God judge me if I'm sincere? How could God judge me? This is the way I am. See, you can be a hypocrite and you can hide your heart or you can be true to your heart and let it all hang out. But Jesus says your heart defiles you and will ultimately bring judgment. See, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he, he actually has some pretty harsh words for them in verse 33. Verse 33, he says, uh, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus promises them judgment. And it's true, Jesus is calling out the, the hypocrites here, the religious hypocrites. He's not calling out the sincere pagan, right? He's, he's calling out the religious hypocrites at this point because they pretend to be close to him. And there is a sense in which that's even worse, right, than just knowing you're far away because it makes a mockery out of God. Pretending to be better than you are actually hinders your coming to him because if you pretend that you're close, uh, you might begin to believe your own press release and, and begin to think that you are close, and so you never actually come close. Because in order to draw near to God, you first must see how very far away you really are. And so Jesus says to the religious hypocrites, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? There's no escape for you, he's saying. It seems harsh. And really, I used to think that these were harsh words. That there were harsh words from Jesus to the religious leaders. But while looking at this passage, I realized that actually these words are, are full of grace. Jesus is not being harsh to the hypocrites. He's really not, which is good for most of us in the room, right? He's not being harsh to us. His words are hard. They are hard. They're hard to hear. But they're not harsh. Because they're not intended to harm I can make that distinction, right? He's not trying to harm us with these words. They're difficult to hear, but they are intended to shake us out of our hypocritical slumber. Jesus is being honest with them. He's being honest about them. If they are to repent, if they're to turn to God, if they're to find mercy, they must see their real situation for what it is. We need to see that our hearts, uh, we need to see our hearts for what they are, that the cup is dirty, and you know, when I'm caught off guard and I act out in anger, that is my true self coming out. When I do shameful things in private, when no one else can see, right, that is our true selves coming out. When I'm shocked at the thoughts running around in my head, that is my true self coming out, scaring me to death. See, Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. See, until you see that about yourself, that apart from Jesus, your heart is a train wreck, you will never turn to him for the forgiveness and grace that you so desperately need. Jesus isn't being harsh. He is being honest. He's also warning them. Woe, right? The whole passage. What is this passage? It's a warning. Woe, woe to you. Be warned. Watch out. Judgment is coming, Jesus is saying. Beware, be careful. Watch where you're going. And yet he's not just warning them, he's also mourning over them. I mean, whoa, it's, it's a lament. It's a, it's a cry of, of mourning. Note verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Can you hear the passion in Jesus' voice? In fact, there's another occasion where we're told that Jesus is, is said to have wept outside of Jerusalem. He longs to gather them together as his children. Like a mother hen, his arms are open to gather her baby chicks. And yet Jesus does more, for mourn, more than mourn for them. He goes even further, of course, because he lived and died for us. And Jesus did what we could never do, right? His sincerity was good and pure and right because the inside of his cup was clean and the outside of his cup was clean, right? Whereas hypocrites seek the glory of men by covering over their shame, seeking to be seen by others, Jesus lays aside his glory. He covers over his real greatness with humanity. He suffers rejection and mockery and defamation for us. See, the way of the gospel is the direct opposite of the way of the religious leaders and even of you and me. He suffers shame at the cross for my seeking glory. Jesus, who was equal with God, is equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lays aside his divine glory and then suffers because I have tried to take the glory of God on myself. He whose heart was clean and pure and perfect, the spotless lamb of God, bears punishment for my unclean, impure, rebellious heart so that my heart and your heart might be cleansed. See, that's why Jesus shed his blood, to cleanse our hearts by faith, to take away both the shame and the power of sin. You know, uh, Peter says at one point that we are ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers, with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot, spot or blemish. John, uh, in 1 John, again, says that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. This brings us to, to, to what I would co contrast with both hypocrisy on the one hand and even a simple notion of sincerity on the other, which is, which is honesty. I mean, what do we need? I mean, at the risk of being misunderstood, I mean, we do need something like authenticity, right? Something like sincerity. Those are both fine words, but it's something maybe a little bit more. We can just call it honesty. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we want to be true to our convictions, even at the risk of pretending that we're better than we are. Uh, sometimes in our culture, we say, be true to yourself and follow your heart. But what we really need is honesty, honesty about ourselves. The inside of our cup is dirty. We need it cleansed. How, how, can we, how else can we contrast honesty with sincerity? We think about it this way. If sincerity or authenticity means being true to me, being true to my heart, no matter what is there, by honesty we mean seeing our heart for what it really is and acknowledging that before God. It avoids hypocrisy because we're not trying to, to cover up. We, we don't have to hide anymore before God because of the work of Jesus. We don't have to hide our sin. Jesus has, has borne our sin in the cross. So we can be honest about what's really inside. But it also avoids this cultural being true to yourself because we're not just saying, yeah, I'm dirty and that's okay. We're saying, oh, my cup is dirty and I need it cleansed. I need to be made clean. Now maybe 
you know, thinking about hypocrisy in the church, maybe that's your reason for not believing in Christianity. And maybe you've been burned by religious hypocrites in the past, and you, you should know this, right? From this passage, you can see that Jesus is against the hypocrisy even of his own people. He's against our hypocrisy. And it's true that there are Christians who are hypocrites. We fall into this. There are non-Christians who are hypocrites as well. But the goal of Christianity is to overcome our hypocrisy. Come to Jesus, right? His arms are open to gather his chicks and to cleanse our hearts by faith. Now, maybe you're realizing, no, I, I am one of those hypocrites, right? Maybe Christianity for you is, is a mile long and an inch deep. You kind of come, you say the creeds, you sing the songs, you take notes on the sermon, and then you walk out the door, and maybe it's all for show. Is it meaningless? Right? Why, do, why do you come? Why do you do the things you do? Is it because you just like to feel religious or look religious, or maybe you're just trying to please your parents, and so you're still coming, right? Jesus is challenging you that your religion is worthless if your heart remains untouched. Come to Jesus, right? His arms are open to gather his chicks and to cleanse our hearts by faith. Maybe you're struggling to follow Jesus, right? Maybe you, you want to follow him. You know, you, know, you know there's this junction between your motives and your actions, between your words and your, your profession and the way that you live your life. Maybe you're struggling. Well, be honest with him. Right? That, that's what Jesus wants from us, honesty. Honesty, that's, that's, right? that's the opposite of hypocrisy. Be honest about your need, your need for inward, not just outward cleansing. Ask Jesus to clean the inside of your cup. Be honest about yourself. Be honest about God. Right? See that His glory is big enough, satisfying enough. You don't have to put on a show to look good, to try to create your own little world of glory. Right? Look to His glory. Jesus, look to Jesus who laid aside his glory to take it up again in the resurrection. Know that the one who humbled himself, right, has been exalted in the resurrection. And, and that, that is really the way to true glory. That's the way to true satisfaction. That's the way to true life is to humble yourself and to be exalted with Christ at the proper time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we... We know that uh, there's often this disconnect in our lives. And we acknowledge that before you, Father, that our hearts are unclean. That we need you to cleanse us. We need you to renew us. We need you to make us whole. And we, we thank you, Jesus, that you, that you bore our uncleanness in the cross, that we might be made clean. We thank you, Father, that you love us because of your Son, through your Son, and that no matter how unclean we are, as we bring that to you, you will love us, you will receive us on account of Jesus because of his shed blood. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are willing to enter into our hearts and cleanse them by the blood of Jesus. We pray that you would come in, that you would cleanse, that you would make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.